You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is Cynthia Ammerman, the Principal Historian and Preservation Strategist at Polis Cultural Planning. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you very much, Taylor. Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So uh, I am based in Kansas City, Missouri, and I have uh, Polis Cultural Planning, my consulting firm. And then I am on the board of Friends of Sacred Structures, obviously a preservation organization that is geared towards, you know, saving historic structures if the congregation is has a, a large community mission. And then I am secretary of the board for the Kansas City Jazz Ambassadors, and I'm the executive director of the Kansas City Latin Jazz Orchestra. So mm-hmm. I have a... I'm very busy here in Kansas City. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds like a lot of stuff on your plate for sure. (laughs) All right, so let's start with start with your education. So you have a bachelor's of liberal arts and a master's of architecture and urban planning and design, both from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Can you talk a little bit about those programs and why you chose to do those things? The, the Bachelor of Liberal Arts, I went that direction because I, right out of high school, I had studied straight history major, and then I took a break from uh, academia and went into selling real estate and was a real estate broker for seven years. And then in the middle of my real estate career, I decided that it was time to go back and finish my undergrad. And so that's how um, UMKC had a, uh, had the BLA, which offered me to utilize all of my program credits from my history program. But then, you know, as I was a little older, I, my interest and the reasons for going to finish my undergrad had changed a little bit. And so I did the BLA and focused on more philosophy and, and uh, film studies and urban studies. And so that kind of rounded out into more of a humanities field and straight history, which what um, I was interested in earlier. Mm-hmm. Out of out of that, I had st- because of my work in real estate and working in, in neighborhoods and in housing, I had gone on that track with the doing a few urban studies courses in the BLA because I started getting more interested in the policy side of of the city and, and, you know, regional politics and everything. So by the time I had finished my undergrad, it was time I was, I knew I needed to to move on to something else in grad school. And so they had the master of arts and liberal studies and UMKC does not have a formal graduate program in the architecture school or in the planning school. Mm -hmm. And so it was a similar situation that the arts and science college allowed me to pick and choose basically my whole program, my whole graduate program. And I didn't want to be, I, at that, I wasn't, I didn't really see myself as a design student. So that's why I didn't do urban planning and design fully as an undergrad. Uh, But as far as, working on the graduate program, that's where I get to pick out program or pick out um, courses from the law school, you know, sociology to focus more on urban theory, um, the planning department, the and then uh, art history for design courses. Okay. So, so I took all of that, I, I did a hodgepodge of something that didn't exist, and still doesn't exist. But by the time I was in the middle of my program, I started do I started doing uh, as a graduate research assistant. I started laying the groundwork for um, a master or a historic preservation certificate based off of my program of study, which now that is in place. I'm not sure um, what the enrollment is at the university for the certificate, but um, so a lot of my a lot of a lot of what I laid the groundwork for for my own for my own studies became 
something formal in the department. But I was never fully, I was always under the umbrella of arts and science and not in, a, in one division of the university. And so I, I got to, I got to um, jump around a little bit more than a lot of graduate students get to. Yeah, so I was going to ask, because the way it's just, you describe it on your website is that it's a self-tailored master's mm-hmm. degree. So that, mm-hmm. that kind of explains what what that means. That's that's really interesting that, that the school sort of let you kind of program your own stuff like that. You don't hear no. about that very often. Yeah, there was a lot of, a, a large majority was independent study. So I did my independent research. And so I did my my thesis was on the on on Jewish communities and the synagogue neighborhood or synagogues in the surrounding neighborhoods in Kansas City. A lot of my work, while it focused on the buildings itself, it really was more of a social snapshot of the Jewish community and their interactions with the African Americans and like that neighborhood change over time. And so that was I really got. While I was in in the planning department a lot, I actually almost got more out of the social theory classes and then my independent study, my independent research, because what I was doing didn't exist in a in a class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but I think I think being an elder, being an older student, you know that that helped. I mean, I don't think a twenty-year-old or twenty-two-year-old probably would have been able to put that together or they mm-hmm. might not have been given the flexibility as much as I had. So right. Right. I'm very grateful. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's definitely different than, uh, I, you know, I would say that your education and background and the work that you do is pretty different than most of the people I've spoken to so far as far as you know like a lot of the people I've spoken to have had just like sort of the traditional preservation either through architecture or urban planning type of master's degree Mm -hmm. and your your stuff and the way that you've gone with it is is sort of out of the box for the type of people that I've talked to so far Mm -hmm. so I'm pretty excited to have you on to be able to talk about it because it's a different path yeah, a lot of the, so honestly, all of the traditional, you know, the survey work and everything, I got that as on the ground experience from one of the yeah, um, elder preservationists in, in the in the region because because while I was working or while I was getting my degree, I was working at Historic Kansas City. And so that is where I got, that's where I learned a lot of the that's where I learned preservation policy was actually doing the work so well since you mentioned that position Mm -hmm. I'm going to move forward to the next question about the 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 various jobs that you've had so you've been a program development officer an architectural historian and even an executive director of a historical society. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown of your progression through those positions and how that sort of led to what you're doing today in your role at at Polis? So the, like I just mentioned the role at Historic Kansas City is where I was the program development officer. And that started off, you know, I was really getting into just familiar with preservation nonprofit work and, basic, you know, member events, memberships, and learning how, learning how the organization functioned within preservation in the city, you know, or, you know, how autonomous it was. So, but while I was there, you know, it was, it was, it was a mix of putting together the member events. We had urban explorer series. So we we would go into, um, oh, I think it was once every two months, that was one of the the big program. One of the most popular programs was going into buildings that were being converted for adapted re reuse. Or, you know, Kansas City still has some of the streetcar tunnels from the eighteen oh, hundreds okay. underground, and so like they're basically privately. There's only private access, and so it'd be like tours like that. But about a year into the, I guess a year into working there. It became more of 
a preservation planner role. And I mean, mind you, this is all part time. And so like I was working on the social media strategy. And so about eight months, a year into it, since I had had so much experience in real estate marketing, I had was really doing more of strategic planning for so like I secured an international marketing firm to do a pro bono um, marketing series um, our, that was called I'm a preservationist campaign. Mm-hmm. So that was a big, a big thing. Uh, worked on the first GoFundMe preservation campaign for the organization to get funding f- to save what's uh, Kemper Arena, a historic, well, just now historic, former concert venue and just your municipal arena from the 70s. Um, but those are some of like the the major projects I did, and then I did uh, worked on preservation planning side and doing survey work in the Country Club Plaza. The Country Club Plaza, for anybody who's studied urbanism, knows that it was one of the first model car centric shopping centers in the country by J C Nichols, and okay. so that was my that was I probably spent a great 17 months like studying that whole 15 block commercial corridor. And so, and that was, that was done at historic Kansas city. And then for a time after I left the organization. So like, that's where I learned, that's where I got my on the ground. So the program development officer was really broad because I, once I started moving into more of the planning or more of the advocacy and planning work, then it was time I could bring on, I brought on an intern to do some of those more administrative tasks. And so that kind of, we, it really blossomed for a while and really got my different experience in, in doing, um, oh, events that have a contextual message, let's say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So after I, finished my graduate degree, I was starting to, I started getting calls to do consultant work. And so it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to dive full into this. And so that's when I, I left the, left to work Kansas City because it wasn't, it wasn't never going to turn into a full-time position. And so, uh, yeah. And, and so it didn't offer, it was, it was not going to, it was just not going to be worth my time to, you know, split it up at the time being. And so that's when I started, I picked up a couple in our projects and then, and then that spurred into getting acquainted with uh, an engineering firm who I was just trying to solicit business uh, <laughs> subconsultant work. And they offered me a job on the spot as an architectural historian. And so wow. then I, so then I worked with Lewis Berger for, one year and got all of the section 106 experience and park service direct park service experience doing work for the corps of engineers and that or in you know fema studies and everything so that i really i really enjoyed everything i learned and just the gravity of the of the projects there but that's where i had the first official architectural historian hat Mm Um, so, and it was, you know, not coming from a formal preservation program, like the, like everybody else on the staff there, you know, I was, I was learning, uh, I was learning, you know, on the fly, but it was also, I thought it was ended up, I think being beneficial for me because I didn't, I don't know, I could operate in, in a different fashion. So like I was doing more of the historic context statements and doing report editing and not necessarily the strict, you know, 106 reviews. So, but that time there, I realized that I'm not a, I'm definitely not a, a billable hour kind of gal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I, that world didn't, I didn't function well in having in the, in the billable hour philosophy so then you know it became another situation and that's where I was still picking I still had a couple of smaller contracts while I was officially at Lewis Berger and so by that time I really you know it was I could 
full go full back into my consulting and so it bought me a little time you know and picked up another set of skills that I didn't have because I wasn't in a formal program Hmm. and so here I am still kicking as a consultant but the the historical society executive director role that came up that it was the community where I grew up and it was very much a part-time position and I came in and for a year and they were in a they were in a um, situation of decline in the non-profit cycle and they had not had a professional they had never had a professional historian in the ED role in the 40 years the organization had existed. Wow. And so I know. And so it was one of those things that kind of fell into my lap <laughs> because it was the community I grew up in. It was the society located in the library where I grew up going to every week during summer break. And, mm-hmm. and so it was, it was very, it was a very part-time position and allowed me to come in and do some strategic planning with the board. And we got, we brought on another staff person to do some part-time, um, you know, membership and outreach and things like that. And so it was just, they were, they were in that need. The board president was like, how do we professionalize? And so we got, we got some structure there and um, secured a couple of regional sponsors that made sense to, to partner with them and everything. And so, but the reason, honestly, the reason why I left was because it's located further away from my house. And so it just got to be too much between juggling my consultant business and, and everything else. So. Oh, okay. Were they able to, after you left, continue that work and, and keep building? Well, sort of. <laughs> yes, I, I think so. My t- while I was there, we acquired a commercial building from a donor that was that is to be the new cultural center. Hopefully, if I get if my whims are followed through, it will be the cultural center and not necessarily the museum. Um, because <laughs> while that was kind of like one of the conversations while I was there, we had a series of, of talks. Uh, um, exploring history and so like I gave a formal talk on what honestly what historic preservation was and how it was how historic preservation isn't has changed in how historical societies changed understanding what the difference between preservation and public history is and while all that was happening then one of the donors in the community was like hey I have the I'm going to buy this amazing building and I'm going to leave it to the historical society. The only thing is I want it to be the museum one day. And I was like, okay, that's great. So okay. that was a lot of like, that was six of my, six of my 14 months was dedicated to that. But honestly, while I was there, we had three off one, two, three, three different offers for historic beautiful buildings to be left to the historical society wow and that's what for me it was it was really overwhelming because there was so much opportunity but the vision between the community and the membership or the board and then the capacity to be able to to implement was just wasn't was not going to be fully realized, unfortunately. And so, but it really kind of blew my mind that, you know, just in those 14 months that, you know, basically it was like the Wizard of Oz and three houses dropped in my lap. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I do know that they, they have, I've, I do know that they are started to transition some of the items that were in storage and into the new facility and everything. And they're using the facility now for different community events and stuff. So it, I think they'll get there. I think they'll definitely get there. And so, and they know that I am always available for, for if they want to pick my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I always hear stories about like sort of benevolent donors for organizations, but I, I, 
I've never been like privy to any of that firsthand. I always just hear those sort of interesting stories. Mm-hmm. So hopefully maybe they'll be able to take it somewhere good, uh, even with maybe a little bit more of yes. your <laughs> help. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it's always interesting to hear about those stories, that how, um, like you said, the architectural historian job and then that this position sort of c- kind of came to you, you know, they were sort of, you know, like you said, mm-hmm. the historian job, they kind of offered it to you on the spot like that. Mm-hmm. That's always interesting too. And I think that is a testament to making those connections with mm-hmm. the community that you work in, because the more connections that you have, those opportunities do come exactly. to you because people remember who you are and, and what you're doing, I exactly. guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So let's move forward and talk about your what you're doing now. So you're the principal historian and preservation strategist at Polis Cultural Planning. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that right, correct? Polis? You are Polis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a really interesting name. Can you explain where that came from? So yes, I can gladly. I am a uh, a philosopher at heart, <laughs> and I in under my undergrad studies I developed a deep love and appreciation for the writings of Hannah Arendt and her ideas of the public realm, the pers- the private realm, and and like that understanding that the polis is is the the sacred the sacred space of the entire city state and so and while it's about while it's also about space and place the polis is also it is the it it implies the people the people's existence and so that was like as i was going through and really formalizing my business and how i wanted to to be known wanted my work to be known i wanted to I chose chose the chose polis because I wanted it to have that double meaning. I love I well I guess it's really triple meaning the sacred, the 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 place and then also that the place cannot be the place without the people and so that is why I selected that. <laughs> okay, yeah, it makes sense. Knowing knowing kind of the what type of work that you do now now I understand why you picked it. <laughs> It makes sense to me now. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some terms that mm-hmm. I, I read on your website. I've seen on other people's websites that maybe are a little bit sort of out of the box or mm-hmm. I guess what I like to call new preservation, maybe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, planning and placemaking. So you hear those terms as they relate to to preservation, but I think they mean different things to different people, especially somebody like me who may be more on like the traditional preservation path. What, what do those terms mean to you in terms of the services that you provide and the work that you do with your company? Okay. So I'm going to start off by saying that I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that you can plan for placemaking. Um, so for planning for me is, I don't know, it, it's almost in a way that I think, I think we have to move away from planning from the ideal. And so that's why I think that when I, the idea of placemaking kind of triggers more with myself because placemaking is active. And that's why I have a hard time grasping whenever, like, whenever planners or uh, somebody who's working for a cultural organization says we need to do more placemaking and we're putting it into this this heritage plan but it's it's removed from it's removed from the the people that know about the place I guess and so <laughs> so for as much as like pre- how preservation works um you know I think that having that history I mean, and of course we're gonna we're gonna hone in on the the historical element and and that placemaking always has to have have the context and that's what I think of that right now I feel that in this movement of placemaking and uh, especially in Kansas City right now we're, we're really honing in I don't know if you see Google has selected us as the suppose the first arts and culture for what is it Google Arts and Culture now so that we they have featured Kansas City and so they've selected oh, okay they've selected 
different organizations and institutions to put forth what they what they have deemed are the most important artifacts or stories or important people that make Kansas City what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go now, I'm going to use this as a prime example is that so they they asked the 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 American Jazz Museum to make to present their collection on on the Google platform. However, they're highlighting the celebration of a museum that has only existed for 20 years rather than going to the source of the 100 and 203 year old mutual musicians foundation where the actual musicians have always played. And so that, so, which is, you know, right around the corner. So that's that for me, it's the, the cherry picking of, of culture. And so, yes, while that collection is presents a certain concept and presents certain, you know, posters, from the museum's history or a few artifacts from a few musicians who may or may not even lived in Kansas City, it's frustrating because they've totally overlooked the actual institution that made the the area what it was, what it's known for. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where that's where the planning can fall. That's where the planning kind of falls through for these organizations because then they because then it's like siloed the 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 area the story of of like a historic district or something becomes siloed if if those aren't connected. And so I think I kind of trailed off a little bit, but <laughs> but that for me that's a good example of the how that disparity of how things are presented as as important or as significant in the place rather but then you you're missing this whole genuine experience Mm -hmm. I can understand that I feel like a little bit of that happens here uh, you know especially New Orleans Mm -hmm. being like Mm -hmm. a tourism-based city Mm -hmm. the people get that sort of surface experience but they're not really getting the the true right uh, like you know you know what i mean yeah. like the true history of the yeah. place they're getting like oh i'm wa- i'm walking in the french quarter so i'm immersed immersed in this you know whatever right. but it's really not that's just sort of like yeah. the touristy surface of everything yeah, yeah that's here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i i completely agree so so i'm that's so i'm not sure that we can I really, I'm not sure that we can plan for placemaking. And so like, I don't want to jump ahead, but um, maybe we can go to like how I think, because we do a lot of active placemaking with the orchestra and everything. And so I think some of that also is that, you know, where, where, where theory meets practice um, a lot of times. And so I think like, it depends on, so placemaking for us is having salsa and like IA every, every month. And so there's a certain street corner that we the orchestra plays salsa and randomly 300 people all of a sudden show up and you know that is the continuity well in Kansas City like obviously salsa is not a street scene it didn't come out of the streets of Kansas City Mm -hmm. but now it has become part of that fabric on that one corner because of the that interaction over time Mm -hmm. and so I'm trying to think what I was trying to say. I had like a whole train of thought that I was going with that. It's okay. It's not your fault. I just kind of spaced out. I was kind of spaced out. So it, that kind of goes along with some of the services that you provide. Like you, you not only, you know, do these sort of preservation based things like nominations and documentation and and that sort of stuff. But you also plan, you help people Mm -hmm. plan events and community things where people can, can come and do those types of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess, and that was how that was one of the, I guess even at the historical society and at the preservation or at historic Kansas city, you know, it was kind of, it was natural because I would, because you got to bring, in my mind, you have to bring the history out to the people. Like you can get them to the space and you can get them to the place, but 
is it it's not just enough to just look around and and experience sometimes like and so you got to pull you got to pull it out of them and you got to pull it out of the place and the space and so you know over the last oh goodness i guess three years about the last three years i've had a hodgepodge of almost 400 events that i mean well i mean and that's you know event that's gigs that that's including you know the total amount of of events that orchestras played for but galas or fundraisers or um, walking tours with um, different organizations and and so yeah that play that place making is I don't want to hone in too much on it but but I think that's because I think you need that spontaneity element but yeah I like I really enjoy highlighting the highlighting the history in any in anything and they kind of so one example is so I had taken did all that work on the country club plaza and then the last two two or three falls I did did a walking tour with a a student design class from one of the community colleges and so I posed a whole different view of the country club plaza than is on the walking tour brochures and I just straight up told the instructor I'm like this is an advocacy and a politics walking tour and then so we're not going to necessarily we're not going to talk about we're going to talk about why this street corner is designed the way it is or we're going to talk about why this fountain is here and why all the design elements make up this Spanish revival theme but we're going to talk about also why that theme exists and the poly and you know the 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 racism that led to maybe this corner even existing or the politics about why a building was going to be torn down or of sky rise was going to be built on a particular corner you know and so i i told her i was like this is just going to immediately not the controversial or this is immediately going to be controversial mm-hmm. and the kids loved it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that's a different like for me that was my idea of placemaking because it's like I didn't want I don't want to I didn't want to you know just walk around and say this is 1922 23 Spanish revivalist and was the first building on the block I in I wanted to tell them you know why that building site was selected and all of the things behind so because it's important and because honestly it's in our faces right now every day in Kansas City so we have all those things have not gone away yet so as we continue as we are renaming streets after Martin Luther King Jr. this spring Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it reminds me of a, a class when, when I was in school, the program that I was in was part of the, the School of Architecture. So, you know, my, one of my professors, it was it was a, obviously a lot of architecture stuff. There was a mm-hmm. architecture classes and we had a studio class. And one of the semesters, the studio class that my professor taught was a lot like that. We, mm-hmm. we focused on a, a particular neighborhood here in New Orleans called the Marigny, mm-hmm. which is right next door to the French Quarter. And he's actually, he has lived in that neighborhood since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so he knows like all of that yeah. sort of immersive history. And we spent Fridays, like that particular oh, yeah. class was like <laughs> a whole day. <laughs> and we would, we would spend the whole day just walking around the neighborhood. And it wasn't just him going, this is this type of house right. and this is this type of house. It was the history right. of the development of the neighborhood, who lived there, why this was there, why that empty lot was there. And, and, but then we had the design portion of it where we had to pick um, some spaces and do what, what, our ideal redesign would be for Mm -hmm. those, you know, like the building or the empty lot or whatever it was. And that, that sounds like really similar to what you did with those students. And that, that class was one of my favorite classes that we had because it was like immersive in the neighborhood. And you really got to get that feel of the history of it besides Mm -hmm. just looking at 
what the buildings were, I guess. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And then today, I, it's kind of funny. I'm sorry. No, no, I, no, um, I, the project that I worked on when I was in that class was an old church building that's made out of cinder blocks. Okay. And that, at that time, this was 10 years ago, okay. it, the, the stained glass was boarded over and it was just in horrible shape. And I just drove past it the other day and somebody bought it a few years ago and redid the whole thing. And it's just beautiful. Repainted the stained glass is back. Like it, it, even better than I ever could have imagined it for the project street, that I what did. What street is it on? What street is it on? Um, you know, I, I don't remember off the yeah. top of my head. Yeah, okay. I'd have to look it up. Uh, but I, I just remember, I just happened to drive past it and went, wow, somebody really, really made that place into something really nice, a lot better than what my little design was <laughs> when I was in class 10 years ago. <laughs> we all have but, those. Yeah. I love seeing that though. It's great to see those types of things happen because so much of it here just sits that yeah. when somebody does buy it and, and make it nice again, it's just great to see it. Yeah, we, we really, we have the same, the same sitting problem of the day <laughs> here in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I can sympathize with that for sure. Yeah. However, in certain pockets, we're, we seem to be doing swaths of dem- demolitions that are not necessarily deemed worthy, but I don't have the political clout for that. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there, I, I don't, I don't know that much about Kansas city. Is there like a, a city run preservationist or yes, department there, of preservation? The, so the, historic, the historic preservation office is within the planning department okay. and they have a staff of two the preservation officer has been there, I think he's been there 15 or 16 years, something like that. And then um, his assistant, his the a preservation planner, she uh, has been on staff for, I think she's going in her third year, but she has had, she's really savvy and has had a lot of international experience and came out of Chicago and did some, uh, did some other she is, is she's also not a traditional preservationist um so she studied international policy and did some did some doctoral work in preservation internationally and so she kind of she's come in with a different different energy i guess mm-hmm. and so it's been it's been good I, it's been good in the city because she's they've that office has been able to do more as or they've been able to do a little bit more marketing than they had in the past and getting some of the communities involved. Like, like our, we're doing the African-American Heritage Trail right now and going, and that's been a complete public process. So I think we're on our like fifth, fifth series of, or fifth meeting in the series. And so it's been more, that has definitely been a, a We'll, we'll say that's only been a planning process that you don't always see in preservation. Um, mm-hmm. So I think they're doing a good job with intentional inclusion. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm always interested to hear what, what sort of city-based yeah, they stuff only is have, happening. They just, have a, they just have a staff of two. Yeah. And we have a lot of geography um, <laughs> in our city. So they're very busy. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Okay, so let's see. You kind of already hit the next question, why you think it's important to sort of go beyond like that traditional preservation and and focus on placemaking and relationship building. Do you you think the type of work that you're doing right now is is the direction that preservationists are are heading towards in the future? I think, I think, yes, there's going to be, there's going to be a large, I think it's going to end up being a great disparity. I think it's going to be there where there's, we're going to be in, in my camp and then we're going to be in the traditional camp. And I think that is natural since, I mean, the idea, what are we, I don't even think we're going, I think let's say preservation has been professionalized for what, maybe a max of 40 years, 35. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. even though, even though we've sell it, we're 52, 53 years into the, 
the act, the major act, I think, you know, um, we're still new and learn preservation is still new and learning and it's philosophy as a discipline is it is ever evolving. So I think that and that was some of the topics that I really wanted to that I was exploring at the historical society because I think because it's not just preservation for me is is that cult is more of the cultural element and I think because of the the precarious political climate that the nation and even globally we're in and you know with human rights issues and personal attacks and everything is so everything is so personal now with social media that mm-hmm. I think that that movement that model to moving to more about the culture preservation of of the culture and shared experiences is going to is going to be resonate stronger with people and so heck we might see more more ideas of monuments or historical markers rather than you know building preservation at some point Mm-hmm. And and I kind of and you see that a lot. And it's very prevalent in South America because, and I think some of that too is having understanding that the the cultural memory varies so much too. And like in the United States, we're 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 a melting pot, so we have a hodgepodge. And I think that the increase of different practices of memory in different cultures, that that element of how memory is preserved it's going to change because like if you go to south america or if you are close with with south american culture the concept of memory is ever present like every day there is something that is memorialized and recognized and it may not may not always be about the specific space or place Mm -hmm. but uh reciting the names or reciting a poem or people congregating on a corner and then that over time becomes that in itself becomes their idea of preservation because it's such an uh, because oral tradition is so is so important um Mm -hmm. so i think that i think that idea that things are things are going to come out things aren't always going to be within four walls and preservation is is definitely and I, I think social media has has is going to have more to do with it because memory is going to become something else it's going to be more documenting it's going to be more video it's going to be hey let's let's honor this and so I think that I think it's just gonna I think the disparity is going to widen mm-hmm. I don't think either one's going to go away and I don't think that there's always going to be, there's always going to be crossover and there's always going to be people who meet in the middle. But I think that it's just, it's, oh, oh, not, not necessarily the, whoever has the the power of the moment, but the influence, I'm going to say the influence of the moment can steer that. Yeah, I guess I, I don't, my, my focus is so much based here. Mm-hmm you know, not just, not just like in New Orleans, but like in the United States that sometimes I, for, I, I don't think about yeah. the, the way other cultures treat their history. And I absolutely understand what you're saying about South American cultures with the, the verbal histories and, and that kind of stuff being right. more important than maybe like one specific building or right. something like that. And that is something interesting to think about. Cause I think you're right. I think the, the social media stuff is going to be a huge change for not only, I guess like documentation wise, but just, you know, recordings and mm-hmm. and and that kind of stuff because it, it will be a way to save those um songs and and stories that right. have thus far just been passed down right. you know individually and that's that's like a whole nother side of preservation that's not like building like right. architecture based <laughs> yes yes yeah okay and i i think i think i think that's 
it's really at the forefront of my mind often too because the the artistry that is that is involved with and this is because I spent a lot of time in Chile and so seeing and 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 having ties to Chile and Peru and and the Latino culture is that seeing the it, it's a it's a class issue too because you know you see this mass amount of expression of these huge historical moments you know and all they they all they have really is the art they have a guitar and their camera or their phone you know to document that moment and to recite those names and so that that becomes that becomes a record because depending on what it is depending on what may have been they may be commemorating you know all the official records could have been destroyed or you know and I know that's going to a very different realm but um I think because a lot of um a lot of commemoration in in those tragic events are it's the unknown like they don't know what happened and so they have to create the story they have to close create the closure themselves mm-hmm. and so it's more ephemeral yeah. But that is very, I mean, this, the, the, the storytelling element, I guess, is really important to me in preservation. So, and maybe that's why I don't, maybe that's why I wasn't very good in the corporate architectural historian category is because yeah. I want to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't want a story. Yeah. They want plans. <laughs> they want plans and they want three sentences to tell me if this is potentially significant or not. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to tell a story. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good segue into um, the other work that you're doing okay. with the Kansas City Latin Jazz Orchestra. And there's there's another jazz organization that you're involved with, too, right? Yes. So, yes. So I'm on the board of so on the board of jazz ambassadors and then I'm the direct executive director for the Kansas City Latin Jazz Orchestra. And then I am just as needed, uh, the preservation consultant for the Mutual Musicians Foundation. Okay. So what, what kind of work are you doing in, in those roles? So the, so as with Jazz Ambassadors, a lot of that right now, they're, they're in their, re, they're in the re-emerging cycle of nonprofits. And so I am really using my programming hat to build and to reconnect because the organization has in the the organization is 30 years old and it was originally founded to really promote um, musicians and jazz heritage and it's kind of shifted more to being let's maybe go listen to jazz sometimes mm-hmm. and but the mission and the model still exists there and so Right now, it's really that strategic development mode of of reconnecting the organization with the musicians and bringing and re, and highlighting highlighting the culture of bringing the musician culture back um, into into the the forefront. So, but that is so that work is really right now just you know think of it literally uh, programming. So different jazz series with different, you know, we're kind of in the flux of like, do we want to have what kind of themes we want to use, what type, you know, if we want to focus on certain musicians and stuff. And so that is definitely my event planning hat right now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So why, why do both things? Why do both preservation and work for the, the music organizations? So I have, I've always, music's always been a big part of my life. And, um, I was, so I've always, I have always played the piano and I was always saying sacred music for the diocese. And, um, but this was kind of like as I became doing more historical research and picking up different projects here here locally, then I slowly became 
really jazz history, like really my personal research is a lot of jazz history and doing salsa history and Latin jazz and why that is in Kansas city and everything. And so there, I, I see the need, I see the need for both and it kind of, it, it feeds my soul to make, to be able to have that crossover. But um, specifically with the Kansas city Latin jazz orchestra, you know, that was our, when Pablo and I, our paths crossed, um, he's the band leader and musical director you know, we had we both had a um, shared philosophy of urbanism and memory and space and place and art and how all of those things collide and and so it I I was seeing I was I understood what he was doing as with his with his work with different ensembles for the last twenty years and and he had it has a generational connect because his he's here. He's in Kansas City. He's he's from Chile. He's in Kansas City for political reasons and from the Chilean exiles. And his family was here. He came here in the 70s. And they part of they soon after becoming arriving in Kansas City started doing cultural event organizing. And so they organized some of the earliest non his non-Mexican, non-Chicano, Latino events in Kansas City. Okay. And so that, you know, they they hosted salsa in places, you know, pay, I don't know what it was. We'll just say five bucks. Five bucks to go dance salsa somewhere where you would never expect it, you know. And so, like, for that, like, learning their story and understanding why that work was so prevalent here, it – it's it is cultural preservation. So like the existence of the Kinsey Latin Jazz Orchestra is cultural preservation. Like we are here to remind people that why Latin jazz is here and why salsa is here and what the what makes all of those things work and and so it's um, so all the you know it's cultural immersion. Any because some of the musicians they're not from they're not from the Latino culture and so they they learn and experience everything um well when they're with, when they're with the orchestra they get the full-on cultural experience because i would say probably 85 percent of our events are cultural are cultural events mm-hmm. it sounds like you're you're with with the work you're doing mm-hmm. there you're you're sort of doing all of your your favorite things together <laughs> at once yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yes, yes. So like we started doing, we we are documenting. Like we started doing video. I do doing video interviews um, with people who may have known who well, they're still alive. They're back in Chile, but who knew um, who knew the early organizers, you know, of these events and stuff from the eighties, and just because it's so recent, it's so um, it's so recent in everybody's face, but. Um, I have my, I guess we'll say I have the irony of having the historian's visionary, vision, visionary vision. Uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, I mean, it's definitely, it, it is a, it is a documentation um, project for sure from my standpoint. And eventually it's in a, it's, we, we need our own building. And so then I'll get to do that other element of preservation. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it all comes together. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah, but like, so what I was saying, the salsa and the salsa and the calle, you know, that is, that is, that is organic placemaking because that, that salsa had never. It's not in a Latino neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know. It's just totally, totally random. But it's become. I think he's on his fourth season of doing that now this summer. So. And now it's part of the, now it's part of the street corner. Right. We, we do something here that's, it, it's not, <laughs> it's not, I mean, I guess it is cultural, but it's kind of a, on the other end there, there's a neighborhood here in central city that does Friday night fights. Okay. <laughs> and they do, they bring out a boxing ring and they okay. put it in the middle of the street and they, they have boxing fights and, and it's become this huge thing here. 
they block off the street and all these people come out and they bring the food trucks and there's music and there's like a couple of fights and it's just kind of it's it's sort of random it's a random place it's like and it's just become this like sort of new neighborhood thing that they started doing and it it's not really the same as 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 salsa and that kind of stuff but it, it's the same kind of no, thing it's, it's become it a cultural thing now yeah it's become yeah it's become part of the culture for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> wow they do it every friday um it's, once it's a not month? it's not every friday but it's it's often enough that it's sort of a continual thing <laughs> continual and expected <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> So I wanted to ask you if you're working on any interesting projects that you might be able to tell us about. Oh, let's see. Interesting projects. I am uh, I'm getting ready to launch my, I don't know if I'm going to go Patreon or Kickstarter, but I'm going to launch my site for my book. Um, oh, nice. So Salsa in the Midwest. So working on that, that is, I can tell you about that because I'm totally in control of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, what else? The, well, we have, it's not really preservation. Oh, so well, I, when I, the last two years I've gone to Chile, I have documented the um, social housing blocks in, that were built in, that were started in the 60s and 70s. And so kind of all over the, no, not all over, but the central, central to mid regions of Chile, mm-hmm. um, because they're very, the, the architecture, they're, I mean, it's straight out of, I mean, it's a, they're Corbusier blocks. Oh, cool. And it's amazing. And so I've been documenting the neighborhoods where, like where we stay in Santiago and then comparing that. So I have, so that's a really, that's some two really neat projects that I'm, that I'm working on. I'm not sure. I'm probably going to go more artistic with the social housing just because it is a very, the story behind the, the housing policy in Chile is in Chile is interesting because the, um, the social housing is primarily ownership, whereas social housing here is renters. So, okay, that is it's an interesting, interesting little story. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, let's see. I'm working on a in Kansas City. I have a I'm working on national register nomination for a an armory building. So that will be submitted to the state next month mm-hmm. and then I'm working on a historic preservation management plan and doing the first post-World War II housing survey for the city of Independence okay. where Harry Truman was from. Okay. So those are some fun things I have going on. Yeah. Yeah, that um, sounds like it sounds like fun. It sounds again like you've got a lot of stuff, a lot of things <laughs> on your plate. <laughs> I do. And the more I say it out loud, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> well, you know that you, you're not the first person I have to say that, that I've interviewed that's, that's had, you know, lots and lots of projects and things on their plate. And I think it's just sort of par for the course, especially if you're sort of consulting and kind of working, okay. um, you know, for yourself. So that's totally understandable. But I wanted to get to my this is my favorite question to ask okay. people when I do these interviews because I always like to hear everybody's answers but what what is your favorite part about preservation for me my favorite part is that I get to do is the travel and I don't know if that's cliche but like even if it's traveling to another part of Kansas City or a little town I've never been to or regionally internationally like that is with I mean, that's every, every, every trip I take shapes almost everything I work on because it, mm-hmm. it like totally alters. I feel like every, my worldview gets altered every time I go somewhere. 
Yeah. Um, even, you know, even if it's just, you know, 50 miles away from here. And so for me, that's really my favorite part is, is that excuse and being able to utilize, you know, utilize my expertise in some potential, you know, somewhere that I'm not, that I don't have roots, but being able to, to, um, to make a connection. So, but yeah, that's my favorite part, I think. Okay. Do you have a least favorite part or like a, any pet peeves? Kansas City, I preservation and then I'm just going to say uh, the I feel that it is intrinsic intrinsically racist okay <laughs> so yeah that's a huge that's a huge problem yeah um a, too too much focus on white yes, white history yeah okay yes, yes yes too much focus on white history and the and then which negates some of the most historic neighborhoods of the whole city and so mm-hmm. and, and another pet peeve is the idea that preservation preservation that preservation organizations that don't embrace change or easily I guess mm-hmm. so um but I get that that's that it's that model it's just a philosophy it's an uh, the ebb and flow I guess so um yeah those are pretty that's a pretty pretty hard one to tackle yeah I think I think both of those things are issues in a lot of places I I feel like that's coming up in in most cities that have any kind of touch on preservation at all nowadays and I I definitely see that just in my experience of talking to people and and um you know because uh, just googling because you know I do Mm -hmm. a lot of googling when I do this I I look up people's information and projects that they've worked on and uh you know I see things where I'm like why doesn't this group have a website like how 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 are we in 2019 and there's no website for (laughs) this organization or they have one and it and it's like geo cities from like 50 years exactly (laughs) or or we're still using the same slideshow from 1994. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess part of it is like, you know, here we are so blessed to be sort of, you know, we're, we're so lucky to be so immersed in preservation. There's mm-hmm. so much of it here. Yeah, yeah. There's so many groups and so many people working to, to sort of drag the, preservation here you know into this century that we're in Mm -hmm. and people working hard to scan those old files uh one of my friends worked on a huge project where she she scanned all the city files for in the french quarter for any images that were submitted for building alteration changes um to the VCC, which is the governing preservation group in the French Quarter. And it took her like two years. And now all of that stuff is online. And she used some GIS mapping and she built a virtual map of the French Quarter. Rockstar. Yeah. I mean, just, just like an amazing project. And, and, and I, I forget that other cities don't have this, these resources available sometimes. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, so you are very, very, very lucky. Yeah. Very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, we're st- I still, we, you know, we're just, uh, so the smaller community, Independence is, Independence is where it was the, we have our second court county courthouse there. It was kind of like the decentralized other major part of Kansas City region. Mm-hmm. And, so a lot of county records are there. The Jackson County Historical Society is there, but that's what their preservation policies, like they actually, their preservation policies, they're a little smaller. And of course they have the National Park Service offices there. So they have, they're ahead of the game on, on, you know, developing, discussing a preservation fund and, and all those things that Kansas City just, is is just now maybe even thinking about so well it's good that there's at least a little bit of that going on mm-hmm. that maybe some of maybe Kansas City can look at them as a model for something in the future I think so. 
Yeah. I think we can do make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, how can our listeners get in touch with you uh, if they just have any questions or they want to see more about the work that you're doing? Or maybe we've got some people that are in Kansas City that want to reach out and touch base with you. So I can, if you want to have more lighthearted, I do have Instagram and it's, uh, you can search just uh, for Polis Cultural Planning or my name, Cynthia Ammerman. Uh, my uh, polis.preservation at gmail.com is a good email. And then my website is polisculturalplanning.com. Okay. And I'll put all that information in the show notes on my okay. website as well. So they can just click through if they want to do that as well. Okay. All right. I think that's all we have for you today. Um, Cynthia, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. You're very welcome. Anytime I'll come back as a guest. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.